You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. In this episode, Brendan and I take questions from our Tax Smart Investors Facebook group and answer them here on the podcast. We cover questions ranging from the real estate professional status, 1031 exchanges, cost segregation studies, short term rentals, and a lot more. This episode also marks the fourth anniversary since the Tax Smart REI podcast, formerly known as the Real Estate CPA podcast, became a weekly show. Since then, we've had a lot of great guests on. We've covered a lot of great topics over the last four years. So if you haven't checked those out, make sure to go into the backlog and listen to some of them because a lot of the content, especially when it comes to building real estate investment businesses, is still highly relevant today. So don't miss out on that. But for now, we'll jump right into today's episode after a quick word from Landlord Studio. Having a good rental management software is essential for landlords who want to stay on top of their finances, save time, and reduce stress during tax time. Without one, you're reliant on outdated and error-prone processes like spreadsheets, paper receipts, and manual reconciliation. Who wants to do that? This can lead to compliance issues, overpaid taxes, expensive vacancy periods, or worse. Master your income and expense tracking with Landlord Studio today. Import transactions to quickly reconcile expenses, automate rent collection and income tracking, digitize receipts on the go, and instantly generate financial reports, including including Schedule E to make tax filing a breeze. Landlord Studio is much more than just a rental accounting solution, though. Take advantage of their range of property management tools from finding and screening tenants to managing leases and even tracking and managing property maintenance tasks. You can learn more about Landlord Studio and start your 14-day free trial at landlordstudio.com CPA. Use the coupon code REALESTATECPA at checkout for 25% off your plan. Again, that's landlordstudio.com CPA and use coupon code REALESTATECPA to get 25% off your plan and a 14-day free trial today. All right. We're starting with questions from our Tax Smart Investors Facebook group. If you haven't already joined our Tax Smart Investors Facebook group, you can do so by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Tax Smart Investors or by searching for Tax Smart Investors on Facebook and you'll be able to find us. And who knows, maybe in a future episode, we'll be answering your questions. All right. <laughs> how many uh, How many people do we have in the group these days? We have 12.4K members right now. So it's 12,400 and it grows by probably 100 to 200 probably a week. 100 to 200 people a week. Wow. Congratulations to everybody that's in that group. That's uh, congratulations on growing an awesome group. I mean, not not only to you, but everybody that's a part of it too. We really appreciate you joining our group and bringing your questions to our table, so to speak. We really enjoy helping all the landlords that are out there, all the real estate investors that are out there. Yeah. And real quick, before we just dive right into this first question here, go ahead and join our group. I'm going to pin to the top of the group in the featured section, a post about what content do you want to hear about? What do you want to hear about in the Facebook group? What do you want to hear about on this podcast? We want to make sure we're giving out content that's relevant to our listeners. So go ahead, join the group, uh, drop a comment, let us know what you're looking to hear about. And like I said before, who knows, we might just, uh, you know, put it here on the podcast. So without further ado, we have our first question. Okay. And that's, can anyone tell me if you can use a 1031 exchange from the sale of a property and invest it into a real estate syndication? I assume the timelines are still the same. Oh, good question. Do you want to take that or do you want me to? 
I could take this one. Um, Go ahead. All right. So whenever you do a 1031, so real quick, for anybody who does not know what a 1031 exchange is, a 1031 exchange allows you to sell your rental property and defer the tax by using the entire sales proceeds. There's a few other things that go on, but using the entire sales proceeds to buy another property, traditionally a larger property, but you can just as easily buy multiple properties if the situation warrants it. Now, the key for a 1031 exchange to work is you have to exchange real property, so real estate for real property. And it's usually rental property or an investment property, not property you're going to fix and flip. But anyway, so real property for real property. Now, when you're investing in a syndicate, what you're investing in is a partnership that owns real property. So a 1031 exchange into a syndicate typically will not work because you're going to be exchanging real property for a partnership interest. And that's a no-go. can only be real property to real property. So there are some other ways around it. You can use a Delaware statutory trust. A lot of these Delaware statutory trusts, also known as DSTs, they do invest in real property and the IRS has blessed them. I forgot the publication off the top of my head, but the IRS has blessed them as a 1031 exchange, uh, basically said it's real property if it owns real estate. So um, you could do that. And DSTs are kind of like a syndication. There's some nuances to them. It's kind of like a syndication and it's run by a third party. You can get much of the benefits of a syndication. But the short answer to just answer your question, you can't 1031 exchange into a syndicate, unfortunately. Good stuff. I actually appreciate you explaining the 1031 aspect as well. Now, we get this question uh, just to kind of add on to this, especially since we just saw this recently. We get this question every once in a while, too. If I'm married and we have a property in like maybe my name or something and I'm not in a community property state, right? So I've got a rental in my name, my name, and I want to create a partnership with my spouse and 1031 the property. So I want to sell my property and I want to buy a new property in a new partnership with my spouse. And I don't live in a community property state. Can I do that? And you don't live in a community property state. So I've my pro I own my property. Yes. But I'm married. I'm going to create an LLC with my spouse. I'm going to sell my property. And then I'm going to do a 1031 into the new partnership that I've just created with my spouse and buy a new property inside that partnership. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't believe you can't though. I'm pretty sure the answer is no, you can't. It does not um, sound right because it sounds like you can't. Really if you're in a community property state, then the partnership can be disregarded essentially. And so the taxpayer will remain the same, right? It's me to me and my spouse. The taxpayer is effectively the same. Right. But if I have a partnership with my spouse, I don't think that you can do that because the partnership is the new taxpayer. taxpayer. Right. Right. In a non-community property state. Right. Maybe we should get Bill Exeter back on. Yeah. Yeah. We could we could get Bill on. Did we ask him that in one of those prior episodes? We might have. I, I don't know. I have to go back, check the tax and legal summit episodes too, because it might have been on there. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I'm pretty sure that you can't, but Sorry to derail. Next question. <laughs> no problem. I just I'm, I don't know that answer off the top of my head. Unfortunately, I'd have to dig into it. Uh, so we got another one. If we have a short term rental, but the mortgage is under my spouse, but the deed will be under both of us, can I do the material participation, or does it have to be the spouse that has the mortgage? You're toast. There's no way that you're ever gonna. <laughs> Come on, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you, you can materially participate. So if you're filing a joint tax return, you and your partner on your joint tax return can both materially participate in the properties that are on that joint tax return. So the hours for material participation can count. 
Uh, you can combine hours for spousal participation for material participation purposes. But let's not get that confused with real estate professional status where you cannot combine spousal hours for that. So one right. spouse has to qualify as a real estate professional, but all completely on their own. But for the purposes of material participation, yes, spouses can combine time as long as you're filing that joint tax return. So that would be the the key there. Right, right. Absolutely. So bottom line is either spouse can basically get the material participation in the short-term rental space. Now, we have another question. What are the ways you can ungroup a short-term rental from a group selection from prior years? I would like to ungroup in the second year one of my STR properties so it's in the passive bucket and use my LTR or syndications to offset the passive income. I'm punting on this one. All right. Well, I could do. So once you make a grouping election, so what the gentleman in this question is asking about is the dash for grouping election, which is uh, typically used to group similar business activities. And because short-term rentals are essentially business activities because they're not rental activities, once you make that grouping, you typically need IRS consent to ungroup them. And uh, I don't know that they're going to consent to you ungrouping one of them. It's typically not how it works. We'd have to do some more research in it. But kind of once you group these things together, the grouping kind of remains the same unless there's a material change in the circumstances and a material change probably uh, under the IRS. And I'm, this is conjecture here. So it's probably not going to be just so you can move into the passive bucket, right? I don't know what a material change would be off the top of my head. I don't know if you have, have one to throw out there. So you said something interesting for all of our new listeners that are probably on this because in the four years that we've been running this podcast, this is our fourth year. Explain this, this, that. What is this so, to the day? So the first podcast that we did the first one that we did was the one I was on where you interviewed me. That was, I think, September 18th, 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. This podcast is being released on that same week. Wow. Um, so. So the four-year anniversary podcast where Tom joined me as a co-host. And before Tom joining me, it was a fledgling, flailing podcast. I would release episodes whenever I could just me talking into a microphone. And then Tom said, we need the podcast. We need to do it consistently. So I had to say, well, you can come on and run it. And now we are a top 1% podcast yeah, in the world. Crazy. That's crazy. That's It's crazy. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're up there yeah. in business podcasts. And people have told me, like, you have an actual podcast. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. not, just, not just like a CPA firm podcast. You have like a real podcast. I'm like, oh, yeah. that's great. I didn't even know. Had, like, <laughs> yeah, we had what? 125,000 downloads last month. Yeah, it was. I think it was like I think it was 132, but you 137,000 listeners. <laughs> Holy crap, man! That is wild. Sorry, everybody. I know that we're not talking about tax and accounting right now. I'm just like kind of, I'm kind of shocked. This is all. Uh, I mean, uh, th this just shows you how much Tom runs this thing because I'm finding this all out live. So this yeah, is and we awesome. Have something like two and a quarter million listens total. Wow, um, man! Only missed three episodes intentionally on the holiday week of each year. So. If you're listening to this and you're wondering why there's not one out on, uh, you know, between the end of December, it's intentional. It's not a mistake. Wow. Give everybody this some time to decompress. Freaking awesome, man. Well, we appreciate all of our listeners. Very much appreciate our listeners. I'm the type of person where if I don't see growth and engagement, I tend to kill the project and move on with my life. So truly, everybody that tunes into this on a weekly basis, it's because of you and Tom. I got to give Tom credit, too because of all of you that we're still doing this. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening and and share the podcast with your friends. You know, We would love to be a, a top 10 podcast in the world. I mean, that would be freaking awesome. But good friends don't let landlords get bad tax advice. That's the motto. So. 
right right <laughs> just right. made that yeah. up so we're that, that's our new motto going forward good yeah, friends yeah. don't let landlords landlord friends get bad tax advice so if you're not sharing this you're not a good landlord friend <laughs> <laughs> anyway so let's get back to this so so you said something interesting to all of our new listeners that well for all of our new listeners they probably don't understand you said short-term rentals are not rental activities what does that mean okay so way back in 1986 so before 1986, you were able just to buy a rental property, right? And just place it in the service and take losses from depreciation. So real estate generates a lot of depreciation, which is a non-cash expense, which you can easily use to shelter your income. So before 1986, you were able just to buy rental properties and have it offset your income. No questions asked. It was all, all good. Then the Tax Reform Act of 1986 came out. And in that, it made all rental activities passive by default. So what that meant is that you can no longer take your losses against your non-passive income, which is typically your W-2 or active business income. There's some other things in there, but it made it impossible to do that until they came across the real estate professional status. But basically what happened is they also had some clauses in there in the treasury regulations that said that if you had a rental activity that had an average customer use of seven days or less, it was not a rental activity. So what does that mean? It means that it's not passive by default. And it's treated essentially like any other business activity would be. And if you materially participate, meaning, you know, long story short, you're actively involved in a business activity, you meet one of seven tests, that income is categorized as non-passive. So long story short, to break it all down, if you had a short-term rental with an average stay of seven days or less, then it will be not passive by default. And if you materially participate in it, then you can take the losses generated by that short-term rental. And again, the losses are generated by depreciation, which is a non-cash expense. So you still could be putting money in your pocket despite having this loss. You could take that loss and use it to offset your other sources of income, such as your W-2 or active business income, and use it to significantly reduce your tax bills. So I think the the important thing to point out here is that when Tom says your short-term rental is not a rental activity, what we're really talking about is it's not a rental activity under the Internal Revenue Code. Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's still a rental activity. I'm still renting it out and stuff. It's just that when we look at the Internal Revenue Code and all the treasury regulations that accompany it, we realize a short-term rental is not a rental activity for the purposes of taxation. And all that means is that you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional in order to make it a non-passive activity. Whereas if you have a long-term rental, right. you have to first qualify as a real estate professional and then also show that you materially participated in the activity. I guess you could do this simultaneously. You don't have to first qualify as a real estate professional, but you got you to gotta qualify as a real estate professional and also materially participate, which is hard to do because real estate professional status to qualify 750 hours in real property trades or businesses and more time in real property trades or businesses than you'd spend in any other activity, which automatically disqualifies anybody with a full-time job. Yeah, And that's why people started looking towards, uh, at least from a tax perspective, looked at short-term rentals as this boon because I don't have to be a real estate professional because real estate professional status only applies to, quote, rental activities. So just an important misnomer to explain. And that's why you will sometimes hear the short-term rental exception called a loophole because it's not, I don't believe that it's the intent, but that's the way that the laws are written. Right, right. Yeah. Back in the 80s, I'm sure they didn't sit there and they were there writing these laws and foresee. They had their crystal ball. They didn't foresee the Airbnb phenomenon that occurred. Right. Because back back then, if you ran a B&B, you had to like 
I mean, it was like your own house, right? You, right. You, or, or it was like a house down the street. I mean, you were actively managing it. And then over time, and especially now, you can manage everything at a distance. You don't have to be like providing substantial services and showing up on site every single day. So the world's changed and the regs haven't caught up. Right. And if you want to learn more about this, last thing I'll say on this before we move to the next question is we have an entire series on this, the STR series. So go, you can check out the podcast. Um, and if you see STR as the episode title, STR 102, 03, I think there's seven of them. We break down this the short-term rental stuff in great detail. So go ahead and check that out if you haven't already, if you're interested in it. So we have a new question, another question. Once you write off depreciation on all your properties and continue to roll the benefits with 1031 exchanges, what happens in 10, 15, or 20 years when you're ready to cash out and stop? Is there a way out of paying all this depreciation back at the end? So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. That's what like, I mean. That is, you know, it's probably not what people want to hear, a little morbid, but. You can die and pass the property onto your heirs. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So the question is, I've taken a lot of depreciation. Maybe I bonus depreciate, cost egg, all that stuff. 15, 20 years go by. I decide I finally want to sell the property or I want to cash out. What do I do? If you sell the property 15, 20 years later, you're likely going to experience a lot of appreciation, right? So you've already kind of got this gain from appreciation. I bought the property for 100K. Now it's worth 200 all these years later. But what you also have is something called depreciation recapture, and that is gain from depreciation. So it's important to understand that depreciation is kind of like a loan from the IRS. I get to claim it today, but at some point, I'm going to have to pay it back. And I pay it back through the form of this recapture tax. So when you sell a property, 15, 20 years into the future, not only do you have gain from appreciation, the actual market value increasing, but any depreciation that you've claimed or could have claimed, some people think, oh, I don't have to claim depreciation. That way I don't have to worry about it, but they will impute depreciation, right. they being the IRS. So you have to claim depreciation that you have claimed or could have claimed as a gain whenever you sell the property. And what can happen is, I mean, it can be a, pretty significant tax hit. Like a, it can really wipe you out if you're not planning for it. And so that's why we kind of tell people like, don't use your depreciation, your your tax benefit whenever you do a cost seg to go buy a Ferrari. Otherwise, so at some point that yeah. gain from depreciation is really going to bite you. You got to keep reinvesting, keep growing your wealth to eventually cover it and know that that day is going to come. Now, there are two ways to avoid or defer the gain from depreciation. The first way is to simply 1031 the property. So if you don't like the property anymore, you can just 1031 it. You can roll forward all of your gain from depreciation, all that depreciation you've claimed in the past, and also gain from appreciation. Uh, another way to avoid tax is to just do a cash out refinance. So maybe you know, 15, 20 years go by, you've probably got a lot of equity in the property. Maybe you just cash out refinance rather than selling the property. But that's if you want to hold on to the property, continue holding. We see a lot of our clients do that because a debt transaction is not a taxable transaction. So you can do a refinance without having to pay tax on the proceeds you're receiving. The third way is die. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you die, basically what happens is your heirs will receive the property at the stepped up basis, which is the fair market value at the date of your death. So it effectively eliminates all the gains and depreciation recapture that you should have paid or would have paid had you sold it within your lifetime. 
So that is the ultimate exit strategy. Um, yeah. I'm sorry to joke about it, but uh, it's just it's, <laughs> it's just too punny. It's too many puns in there. Um, well, you have you have to kind of you have to laugh about it. Everybody's gonna die. Yeah. Don't take it too personally. Jeez, um, yeah. it, it is a good way to pass assets onto your heirs and allow them to avoid taxation or eliminate taxation. Uh, you do have to be careful. We see investors make mistakes where they will gift some of the property or all of the property to their heirs to help with probate or avoid probate. And just know that when you gift the property, your heirs will inherit your basis in the property. They will not receive a stepped up basis in the property. We have seen horror stories where what was intended to be a great benefit, it'd be like if I went and bought a property tomorrow and I was like, you know what? I really want my son and my daughter to have stakes in this property so that they can pay for college or they can take it over whenever they're in their 20s and 30s. Like it'd be such a great way to set them up for wealth, right? Very well intentioned. But if I gift them property today, they receive the basis today. So if I die 30 years from now, they won't get the stepped up basis. Uh, they won't get their basis stepped up to fair market value because I already gifted it to them way back. So just be really careful with the gifting. Uh, we yeah. see it pretty often, actually. It's it's kind of interesting how I don't know where people are getting this advice. I think that it's just well intentioned, like just want to like loop family members into the the process of owning rentals. But yeah, yeah. When you get to that, make sure you you keep estate planning in mind and you and you work with a, someone who's qualified in estate planning to to help you with that. Just don't go willy nilly because you can make a lot of mistakes that could be very costly. So. Make sure to cross your T's, dot your I's in that area. Yeah. We do want to let you know that we did officially release the short-term rental tax course, which teaches you everything you need to know about the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. In the course, I cover an overview of the short-term rental loophole and its powerful tax benefits, how to materially participate in your short-term rentals to reduce taxes on your W-2 and other active income, how to maximize your tax savings using cost segregation studies and bonus depreciation, as well as how to avoid critical mistakes that can cost you thousands of dollars in tax savings. By the end of the course, you will know exactly what you need to do to use the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. With the amount of value that is included in this course and the potential tax savings, I could have easily charged upwards of $997 or perhaps even $1,500 for this course. But you know what? Because I want to help as many people use the short-term rental loophole as possible, I'm giving it away for only $247, which is really next to nothing if you think about the potential tax savings that you can get from using a short-term rental loophole. And with bonus depreciation phasing, out over the next few years, the sooner you can take advantage of the short-term rental loophole, the more tax you'll be able to save. So if you're ready to save five to six figures in taxes by using the short-term rental loophole, you can enroll in the course today by going to courses.taxsmartinvestors.com and enrolling. It's just that simple. Again, that's courses.taxsmartinvestors.com. All right, so we have another question. Will doing a cost segregation study hinder my ability to secure conventional loan financing in the future? since my previous years will show a bunch of losses. I'm happy to take this one. We get this question a lot. Clients ask us this question. Tax smart investors ask us this question all the time. The reality of the situation is it depends on the lender that you're working with. Lenders who understand real estate and who lend to real estate regularly will typically add back the depreciation when they're underwriting the loan because they know depreciation is a non-cash expense. Now, if you're working with a lender who does not understand this, you could try to explain it to them. Don't panic. Okay. Don't panic. They might tell you that they can't do it. And you might be like, oh my God, every, the world's ending. No, it's not ending. It's not ending. It's okay. Take a deep breath. And you can explain that to them, or you can find a lender who's real estate friendly 
And that might be the better way to go in the long run because they're going to be much easier to work with. They understand the nuances of investing in real estate. And there's a lot of them out there. So the bottom line is you can if you're working with the right lender. So moving right along to the next question. Can I do a cost seg for an ADU that was built this year that cost me $300,000 that I already rented out? I don't know. Can you? I mean, I would assume you could, but I don't. You you could. You could do the cost segregation study on it. It's just, do you need to do one in the first place if you just built it this year, right? True. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you have cost data, do you even need to do a cost segregation study? Because the whole point of a cost segregation study is to identify the cost information. But if if you're building ground up, you have hopefully cost data. Right, right. So yeah, you should have all the invoices, the receipts, the scope of work, everything, you know, if you keep that organized, then technically you could be able to, you know, in your accounting system, break that all down into like the useful life or talk to your accountant about how they want to see that because you technically don't need a cost irrigation study. Again, like Brennan said, when you buy a property that was built 30, 40 years ago, however long, chances are that information is not available. And that's when you have to use a cost irrigation study, get that information. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, This one is a great question. We get this all the time. How beneficial is a cost segregation study if you cannot qualify as a real estate professional? Yeah. I mean, I can talk about this. I recently just did one on a portfolio of properties that I own, and I don't qualify as a real estate professional. I mean, there are some other factors at play, but uh, it's going to be beneficial. I mean, I'm going to have suspended passive losses on my return, but it's going to be beneficial for me for two reasons. One, the cash flow that I'm receiving from my rentals that are cash flowing well, I'm not going to pay tax on today. It gives me a cushion. All these suspended passive losses give me a cushion with my current rentals. So I just get the cash flow, I get to pocket it and not have to worry about taxes. The other benefit that I see is it just gives me additional options when selling a property. So if I've got you know a property with a large built-in gain, Maybe I don't have to 1031 it. Maybe I can just sell it and use the suspended passive losses to offset the gains. It just makes it a little bit easier to make selling and liquidation decisions. Yeah. So it's still beneficial under the right circumstances, despite the fact that you're not a real estate professional. Um, And I'll just throw... Well, and let me actually... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I also just want to kind of clarify, like when we talk about benefit, we're really talking about time value of money. We're talking about net present value. You know, you want the actual tax benefit, the net present value of the tax benefits needs to exceed the cost of the study, right? And so if you can build out a model on a spreadsheet that shows that it can, then you should do the cost seg study. So like, I'm not going to necessarily benefit from the cost seg study this year. It might not even be next year, but when I built this out in my Excel model and I've got year three liquidations, year four cash flow, all that stuff. And I find the net present value of those future cash flows, the, and, and those the net present value of those future cash flows exceeds cost of the study or the benefits exceed the cost of the study, then then I'm good, right? I pull the trigger on the study. Absolutely. And I'll just say this. I'll say this one little thing real quick. So it is beneficial because right here's my scenario. So I had a property that I owned via limited partnership and I had a tax bill associated with it. Um, and I was kicking myself because I was going to pay a five five figure tax bill on this. And I was like, okay, you know, if I can invest in a property and do a cost segregation study, or if I can invest in another syndication that's going to do a cost segregation study, I can take the losses from that syndication and not pay this five figure tax bill, take that money and put it into another investment and continue to grow my wealth. 
I'm still kicking myself. I wasn't able to execute that properly. So the bottom line is it's still beneficial, especially if you're going to be selling a property at a, with a gain, it could still be very powerful for you. So speak to your advisors before implementing anything and see if that makes sense for you, but it, it could still be beneficial. Um, all right. So we have another one, another short-term rental question uh, regarding cost segment material participation. When does material participation start? Is it when the property is under ownership or once it's active as a rental, in other words, placed in service? All right. So typically, you know, once you own the property, uh, you start working on it, getting it active, ready for rent. That's when the material participation is going to start for you. So you don't necessarily have to have it placed in service. Uh, but once you take ownership of it, all that work you're going to do to rehab that property, you're going to do the painting, you're going to do uh, the remodeling, all that good stuff. That's typically going to count as material participation uh, once you take ownership. Let's do one more. One more. One more. All right. So who's going to be the lucky person here? Okay. <laughs> Here, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Okay. And it's kind of related to what we were just talking about. Just out of curiosity, if I have a passive loss in one year from a cost segregation, will that loss cover the capital gains as well as say the increases in stock prices if I wanted to sell? So in other words, capital gains from the sale of stocks. And we get this question a lot too. So when you have a passive loss, right? That can only offset passive income. So there's effectively two, for the purposes of passive losses and non-passive losses, or passive losses and non-passive income, there's only two buckets. There's passive and non-passive, and really that's it. Stocks, for whatever reason, fall under the non-passive bucket. So yeah, you can go and you can invest in Amazon or Apple and you know Tim Cook and you know Jeff Bezos or whoever's running Amazon now can go drive up the value of that company and you didn't do anything, so it feels very passive. But that's not the way it's categorized under the tax code. It's categorized as non-passive. So when you have losses... Just uh, let me jump in there real quick. For all of our tax listeners, if you want to get technical, uh, you can look at IRC section 469E. That's where this is. It's income or losses not from a passive activity. And that's where this is all described. But continue. Sorry. Absolutely. So the non-passive bucket. So capital gains, interest, dividends from the sale of stocks is in the non-passive bucket. And because of that, you cannot use passive losses that are in the passive bucket to offset that income unless you were to qualify as a real estate professional or if you had short-term rentals and use the short-term rental exception. So those are the only two times where you could generally do that. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be the passive losses are not going to be able to offset the capital gains from stocks. All right. So I think that concludes our Q&A for today. Just remember, if you want to ask questions in our Tax Smart Investors group, uh, you can go ahead and join that taxsmartinvestors.com slash groups slash taxsmartinvestors or search for Tax Smart Investors on Facebook. Drop your questions in there and you know you, the discussions are going. They're going. We might hop in and answer it or it might just show up on a future episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. And thank you again to all of our listeners that have made us the top 1% podcast in the world, 130,000 listens. Honestly, it's amazing. And we are very thrilled to continue bringing you content on a weekly basis. Absolutely. That's all. And we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, before we go, I wanted to remind you about the short-term rental course, which breaks down everything you need to know about the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. After helping dozens of private clients and hundreds of bootcamp students, we wanted to help as many investors as possible use this strategy. And with bonus depreciation starting to phase out, the sooner you can take advantage of this short-term rental loophole, the bigger your potential tax savings. So if you don't want to miss out on this amazing opportunity, you can enroll in by going to www 
courses.taxsmartinvestors.com. Again, that's courses.taxsmartinvestors.com. That's all for today, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.